to Maritime AgCast, the podcast dedicated to the farmers and the farm community of the Maritimes. We will discuss all things related to the livestock industry with local, regional and national guests, as well as keep you up to date with current markets and industry events. Today, we will be joined by Dan and Mandy DaCosta and Adam Steves to discuss being a new entrant to agriculture from a young producer perspective. Mandy, the chef, and Dan, the software consultant, moved from Ottawa, Ontario to Cumberland County in 2015. They initially bought 45 acres where the land hadn't been farmed in about 50 years. With a herd of cattle, they reclaimed the land using intensive managed grazing. They are now currently rearing a herd of low-line Angus to develop a line of genetics, resulting in tender meat and raised on pasture. Future developments for Dandy Little Ranch include expanding the herd, developing a newly acquired land, and adding the infrastructure to allow them to process the animals on farm with a pasture to plate approach. Winston Adam Steves is a 25 year old first generation farmer. He farms 240 acres of mixed annual and perennial forages. Adam's primary focus is on growing his flock of Rito Yo's that he manages on an accelerated lambing schedule. So Dan, Mandy, Adam, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having yeah, us. Thanks. Great, I, I always like talking to particularly young producers, um, and especially the things that intrigues me about the three of you, um, if don't come from farming families or an extensive farm background, but have decided to make a, a bit of a life out of farming. So maybe Dan and Mandy, we'll start with you. What did your life look like before you moved to rural Cumberland County, Nova Scotia and started farming? It was actually very relaxing. We had a lot of free time <laughs> prior to, to the move and the shift in our lives. Mandy had just finished school becoming a paper chef. I was a software consultant doing things that are not at all tangible. We were kind of kicking around <clears throat> something. We knew we wanted to come to Nova Scotia. Dan's children went to school here and that's kind of how we fell in love with the place. Uh, so we were shopping for, I don't know, everything bed and breakfast, farmland, something. I knew I wanted to kind of do the, not farm to plate at that time, but I was, I was in the kind of wanted to find the best steak. And in order for me to find the best steak, we kind of figured that we might have to make it our own long-term. We bought the farm before we moved here. So we kind of looked at Nova Scotia and then decided we would come. We thought we would end up doing sheep um, as opposed to cattle, but uh, with the help of Perennia, they kind of guided us that maybe cattle would be an easier route to take. Well, yeah, we also still both have off-farm jobs, so cattle were more self-maintaining than sheep would be, uh, I would assume, in the long run. So, Excellent. So uh, fell, fell in love with Nova Scotia. So why Cumberland County? Is that a geography thing or just kind of happened to find uh, the right piece of land with the, the right price on it? We were, so we were, at the time, I was traveling for work quite a bit. So all I needed was proximity to an airport. And so, an internet connection. That and, was a yeah, big thing and we too. needed to have decent internet. So Cumberland County worked for us because of the proximity to the Moncton Airport. We did look in other areas of Nova Scotia, but... We, start, we struggled buying it though, because we would, we would come to look at places. We're from Ottawa, so we would fly in on the weekend and book a bunch of showings. We'd find something we really love or whatever. And by the time we get back, we go to put an offer and it's gone. So how we ended up in Cumberland County was Dan found this posting for this farm. We thought the house was going to be, it was no good. It was just, we were buying it just for the acreage. He's like, what do you want to do? And I said, just put an offer in. We won't even go look at it, just buy it. And that's how we ended up actually in Cumberland County was just uh, take it before we don't have anything again. 
So at the time, Cumberland County was a plus from a travel perspective because it was 30 minutes door to door, you know, from our house to the airport. So that was great. But on the flip side of that, our closest major city is another is it province. Another province. So regulations, there's it's, it's entirely different set of regulations to be able to to sell beef. So yeah, yeah, that was always a struggle. So, so Adam, before we talk too much about the, the farm operations itself, what was your life before uh, you, you turned to farming a couple of years ago? Yeah, so I guess I've lived a, uh, a long life for not being alive very long. I, uh, I'm only 25. I dropped out of school in grade six and started working full time. So I've been busy. I, I worked uh, in a print shop for many years running a, an offset printing press and yeah, with the dream of being a professional athlete, and I competed professionally for a year uh, when I was 19, and then kind of realized that that was a little far-reached. So I spent a couple of years living in a, a converted Sprinter van all over the West, doing ski mountaineering stuff, and and then kind of started realizing that I had to figure out what I was going to do because I could only do that so long, and really farming and getting into uh, forestry stuff was kind of always on the top of list for what I wanted to do moving forward. Um, but actually a trip to Iceland kind of cemented the idea that I wanted to pursue farming. We spent a couple weeks on a sheep farm in Iceland and completely different than what I'm doing now, but it still kind of, kind of hit home that that was the direction I wanted to go. And so I came back and started, started working towards that and, Spent a couple of years uh, working at a farm and started acquiring my sheep. And that's where I've ended up now is with my flock and the land I'm on now. So one of the things I find very interesting about both your stories is that they're very similar, but very different at the same time. So Adam, I think you've taken a much more commercial size or scale approach to your farming endeavor, where Mandy and Dan, you've taken a much more niche approach with specialized genetics and beef and more of that direct to consumer. Tell us a little bit more about how you, you got to that point and maybe how you got to the whole Angus side and, and finding that perfect steak, as Mandy says. From certain perspective, we've chosen that niche route because of barriers in the industry, right? Being right here on the border between Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, if we want to sell into restaurants in Moncton, we'd have to send the animals to a to a federal abattoir. So that adds costs. It also adds stressors to the meat, which is something that we're trying to avoid, right? We, we want to actually process on, on farm. So I think that was probably part of the path as to why we chose, you know, the, the niche route, if you will. Well, and before that, I mean, we started <clears throat> off, we got cattle because we were at a field day in the pan and we were kicking around. We still had the land. We didn't know what we were going to do. I believe Jonathan Ward had already come out and talked to us about, you know, I should get cattle put on the land. And another farmer leans over to me as we're walking over to the next thing and says, Psst, do you want to get some cows? And I said, well, maybe. And then, then we started talking about it and we ended up getting six first. And these were just a British mixed breed. And we got too big, too quick for two people that had two full-time jobs. I wasn't supposed to be working. I was always supposed to be whatever. And Dan would work until we could both retire and farm. But then I got into the federal government, which is a job that you can't say no to. So we changed our plans a little bit where he would retire. The big Having the big herd helped us because it helped us prep the land really good. 
Then we picked up the Angus herd because that after Dan having done three years of figuring out where we want to be, he kind of set his mind on the low line Angus and that kind of thing. So we locked out and we sold the old first herd that we had. And now we're just focusing on the Anguses, which is nice because we've got a seven yearlings, 14. So we've got about 15 girls and 15 calves and yearlings of different ages. So that's an easy number for us to manage right now. Um, and it gives us a little bit more time to kind of figure out where we want to be and what we're going to do with the genetics. But he's right. One of our mantras is the whole from pasture to plate. If at all possible, I want to be responsible for from that when that's born, Dan deals with it all the way up to when I walk it into our slaughterhouse and we deal with it. And then that customer comes like I never want the animals to have to leave as part of our kind of mission or vision for the farm. Excellent. And, and Adam, you've taken a, a much different approach, much more at a, at a grander scale, I would say, and also doing some accelerated lambing, uh, which would make you one of the very few people in Nova Scotia, if not the Maritimes. Uh, that are taking that uh, approach to lamb production as well. Yeah, I uh, the farm that I, I I worked at worked on before I got my own flock was a direct to consumer farm, and so for a while I kind of thought that would be the direction I want to go. But then I, you know, I kind of realized that I don't like dealing with people. I like being able to get up and go and do my own thing, and hopefully not have to talk to anybody unless I feel like it. I'm terrible at marketing myself. And so I figured that wasn't going to be a good fit for me to try to sell myself and sell my product to the individual. And I wanted to more, you know, be able to spend that time on, on perfecting my, what I was doing with the sheep and not, not selling, which I think, you know, now that I'm in it more, I realize that I'm, I'm still selling, you know, to different buyers, you know, trying to market to, the different buyers and, and you still end up spending time on the phone talking and trying to make sure you're getting your getting the best price for what you have to offer. And really, you know, and the accelerated lambing for me was I only had so much startup capital available. And with the lambs trying to maximize my profit from my individual use and the accelerated lambing and it's allowed me to grow much quicker than having to wait for 12 month turnaround. Now, that being said, it's been challenging. I, this summer, it's been very hard to try to breed ewes. We haven't bothered to put rams in because, you know, ewes aren't getting up in the day and, and they're not really showing their, their heats and the rams aren't really showing much activity. So we're kind of out of our swing of our hope of our accelerated program. So, you know, I guess I'm back on that list of not being an accelerated producer, but, uh, that's where we're definitely going is I see a lot of potential to, to be able to bring lambs to market year round. Now that might change here in the future. We got recently married and, and uh, so my wife, I think is going to bring some other things to the farm that could change us and bring us, pull us back a little more to the uh, direct consumer. So we'll see this kind of an exciting thing. Maybe have someone else on board that, uh, has more interest in that side of the the industry so is it the heat that throw that has thrown everybody out of whack yeah because you know sheep naturally are are just a seasonal breeder there's like only a select few breeds that are a seasonal or, or that breed year-round and even those ones like so i primarily Rito's Rito arcots which in theory should breed our season now you do have a lower conception rate 
and uh, a lower lambing rate out of season because they're, they just don't, I guess, my understanding is they don't cycle as strong. So we get in these hot spells and I don't know, nature's nature. I think it's hard to fight. And and I could try to, to force a little more with the um, hormones, but it's expensive. And we tried it in a heat spell last summer and my conception rates were terrible. So we decided to just we'll catch when it cools off. Like, I think we're going to put Rams in here the next day or two and right. hopefully do better, but it's been so warm and humid that yeah. they don't like it. Here are upcoming events brought to you by Dalhousie University Faculty of Agriculture. Dalhousie's Faculty of Agriculture is educating the next generation of farmers. Our students learn to solve real world problems in a friendly, hands-on environment from professors who are leaders in their fields of study. Dow researchers have access to cutting-edge technology, labs, and resources. Whether it's applying genetics to improve livestock, working with producers to engineer more efficient blueberry harvesters, or designing smarter Christmas trees, Dow Agriculture is driving the innovation that makes our farming community stronger. Learn more. Visit dow.ca slash agriculture. In upcoming events, feeder sales will occur once again with regular scheduled sales once a month through the summer, the next one happening Thursday, June 16th at 10 a.m. Please check AtlanticStockyards.com for a full sales schedule. The Nova Scotia cattle producers have two programs available for 2022, the Nova Scotia Genetic Improvement Program, the Nova Scotia Soil Pasture and Forage Management Program. Both programs have application deadlines of June 30th and November 30th. Additional information can be found at nscattle.ca. And there are many Nova Scotia programs open for 2022. For a complete list of programs, guidelines, and applications, please visit novascotia.ca forward slash programs. One of the other things I'd like to touch on where you don't come from farming backgrounds is some of the people either in the community, uh, the ag community that you've relied on uh, to gather some information and sort through that information to make sure that uh, you were getting good advice or a uh, good regional perspective on what you should be doing, um, whether it was a local farmer, some extension agents. I don't think we would be farming if Perennia did not exist as an organization. Well, and the Maritime Beef Council and anyone that put on the, like we did the, the beef college and anything that was put down, we went to the field days, we, we scooped up any workshop that we could. Uh, we attended all the conferences. I mean, it's still hard when things are going sour and it's midnight and you're on pasture and I'm YouTubing what's happening right now because we've never dealt with these things before. That's if I have reception. Yeah, that's panicking a little bit. So yeah, so I think without the extra book smarts and you like you, so all those places gave us the specifics of what to look at, like having Jonathan Work come out and say, no, don't do sheep. You guys work, you guys put cattle on, they'll do this, they'll you know, start, we wouldn't have, done it if it weren't for their guidance I think that led us to networking which was good I may have struggled a little bit personally Dan not so much being a female in a very male oriented kind of thing so like if Dan and I were to go in and shop for a tractor I own the farm my corporation owns the farm yet they would go to him and not pay any mind to me even though I'm going to be the one signing those papers and we're also from away so that was sometimes you know people around here may not like the from aways some do, some don't. 
uh, we had we were lucky because we we lived in Wolfville for a little bit before moving here. So that was always a story. Where are you from? Oh, we're from Wolfville. Now we're gonna. Now I've given away our secret. Now we're totally from away to everybody. But yeah, if you're not local, you struggle sometimes too because they may not want to give you the information that they have around here. So the extensions helped us a lot because they didn't care where you were from. If you were there, you they're gonna teach you what they know. So that was always good. And then working, I worked with Adam at John Donnysville. So working for other farmers was really good. I worked in the processing plant there to do chickens, which also gave me the like of more processing. So yeah, and I think that was good as well. A lot of people I, you know, I talked to and you know, I worked for John Dinosfeld for many years and he's been a big, big help and getting me going and, and you know, definitely has shaped a lot of what what I'm doing now. And my vet, I've got a great relationship with my vet, who's been very helpful, even though, you know, a lot of things was coming forward with you know she'd never dealt with she'd never done up a hormone synchronizing program for somebody and when I started getting her to preg check my sheep regularly she'd never preg check sheep that consistently and and so things like that were new to her but all along the way and very helpful and very quick to try to find answers for me and then same with talking with Jonathan Jonathan's always you know when I have a question I've called him a couple of times with things and he's been always very helpful and and my sheep shearer i bounce ideas off of him a lot you know just someone that's in and out of sheep barns all the time and you know someone that i think everyone complains to and tells their stories to and you know he's helping me through some some things to give me ideas or advise me not to do things i know that i've got a list of things i know i'm not going to do cut that came from him that i might otherwise do i i got a friend down the road dairy farmer and i he doesn't know sheep but i you know when it comes to my feed and and all the forage, he's he's the guy I go and talk to because you know he knows what what grows on the other side of the fence from what I'm trying to grow. So you know, there's no one better to ask than someone that's that that's doing it right next door. So um, yeah, I think just the slew of people have helped me get where I am. And the the farm I'm on, I, I lease it from an old sheep farmer who's now retired, and he's a sheep on that property since the late '70s. And you know, I raise sheep in a, the completely polar opposite of the way he raised sheep he raised sheep pretty well free range and lambed once a year and was very hands-off and then i'm the opposite i lamb tried multiple times a year i'm very hands-on trying to i'm in there making sure we can maximize and so even someone like that who, who a lot of times i don't think really understands why i'm doing something and but he's had many good ideas and and i still bounce all my ideas off of him he's seen a lot of things off a problem in the barn and he'll walk in and he'll you know tell me the last the last time he saw it we were having problems lambing and he was giving me remedies that he used and when he first started lambing and some of them work and some of them i don't know i don't even bother trying because they seem like more work than they're worth but yeah i know for me it's real important to have that that list of people to call and to talk to because I, I don't know it all and i never will so finding the people that do know it is important for sure. I think one of the, the best skills you can have is, is networking. Like Mandy said, you know, getting out to conferences and workshops, you know, you're not just learning from the speakers or the presenters, you're learning from one another with similar challenges or similar stories like yourselves. One of the, the next things I'd maybe like to touch on just a little bit is, you know, what you're doing with some of your grazing management to help rejuvenate your land. I think you're both on farms that could use a little TLC and pasture and land improvement. 
So maybe just tell us a little bit about your program and how long and you've been at it and, and what some of the benefits you're seeing from your particular, maybe we'll start with your grazing. So I've been on the farm lawn now for this is my third summer, third grazing season. And, you know, the, the farm, I don't think was neglected. Graham, the farmer that owns it, I, I lease from, he, he maybe didn't have the stock numbers and, and was kind of running out of steam. So last couple of years, things have maybe slipped a little more. It's kind of interesting to look at the, the soil samples he has from the early 2000s when he was really peaking in his production versus the soil samples that I'm taking now. So, you know, like you said, Brad, one of the big things that I'm doing is my grazing management and I farm 240 acres and I only have a hundred ewes, so I can't touch all those acres with my small flock. So the last two years I brought in 30 uh, beef heifers that I, I graze. And at times, I guess I mob graze them. But most of the time it was just daily moves through the pasture and, they covered about 50 acres I set aside for them and uh, great results. I didn't have them in this year um, because I was hoping to hit it big in the hay market this year, which was a terrible year to do that because everyone has lots of hay and it was a hard summer to make dry hay. So, you know, we didn't hit that one good. I might have to buy my own 30 heifers this year to feed all the excess hay I have, but we'll figure it out. And then with the sheep, one of the things with the sheep is – a lot of this land, when Graham got it in the 70s, I believe he bought most of it in 74, it came straight out of barley. None of it was ever plowed again. And he got a couple tractors stuck. And so there are some very rough fields that it's rough making hay on. And, and it's all, you know, naturalized pasture, quite productive, like lots of good grass. Um, so I've been trying to get it turned over um, slowly and, and you're trying to utilize a lot of really high productive annuals um, to try to maximize my animal growth on the acres that I turn over just because it's, it's quite costly to uh, get it plowed. So you started running winter rye that I can graze off in the spring. I've only did that one winter and uh, highly recommend it to anybody because I had sheep out on the rye three weeks before any pasture showed any signs of greening up and they did phenomenal on it. Um, and then I plowed it under and planted in that field. We went into uh, a mix of clover, millet and oats, which we then grazed off, we'll graze off twice. And then I think we'll no-till in winter rye again for this winter. And then next summer it will go into uh, perennial grass. And we're also running annual ryegrass and clover and other turnover fields that will also get fall rye this winter. So I guess those are some of the steps we're taking. And with those sheep, they're all being, you know, high a daily or every other day rotation through the grass. Nothing except from the fall usually will be grazed more than two days unless there's something, something weird going on. And on our side, we've, um, well, up until three weeks ago, We've struggled our three years that we've had, or four years that we've had animals. Our farm was only 40 acres and had not been farmed in about 50 years when we got it. I wish hogged the first year and we put up fences and we put cattle on and that was really, it was the cattle that did all the work. We have tried brassicas one year, that was a complete failure. Nothing but it was did. also, again, we didn't have anyone 
helping us with the no-till drill. So I think it was complete yeah. operator yeah. failure yeah. that we just didn't set it right. The year after we found like it's one little kale later, plant we'll comes up out of nowhere. We're like, oh, look, it kind of worked. Uh, we've been frost seeding uh, clovers in, which has actually been quite successful. Yeah, for sure. We're doing that now every year um, on our 40 acres. But we've now jumped from 40 acres to just under 300 acres. Uh, we bought 140 acres contiguous to our original farm and another 60 acres um, on the other side of our little peninsula. And we've got 10 acres here in the Joggins where we now live on as well, which is pasture. So a lot of trees on the properties that we have bought. So we're trying to, we're going to try and incorporate silvo pasture, pasture yeah. concepts into what we're doing. We made the decision not to spend any money on uh, machinery or to reduce that as much as possible. Well, our goal, our ultimate goal would be if, if we could never make hay or have to buy hay in. So I think we're going to have some pretty aggressive seeding programs with annuals. We'll be leveraging our different pastures because there is a bit of a weather difference between the two of them. So we'll be summer falling in on one of our properties and wintering on another. We don't have a barn. Again, that was a conscious decision we made not to spend money on big infrastructure, infrastructure. On big infrastructure. So the tree lots work well in, in our scenario, but obviously we still need to turn a lot of that, those trees into pasture. We need to get, you know, get the grasses growing on all those areas. So it's, it's going to be a bit of trial and error to see what works for us, but it'll be interesting. Here's the market report brought to you by Atlantic Stockyards Limited. Atlantic Stockyards Limited has been Atlantic Canada's major livestock market for over 60 years. The stockyards attract buyers regionally as well as extending into central Canada. Livestock auctions occur every Thursday with cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, rabbits and poultry all featured. Additional information such as previous market reports, feeder sale dates and vaccination forms can be found on AtlanticStockyards.com. For the weekend in May 20th, 2022, in the local hog market, base price in Nova Scotia was 2.46 per kilogram, up 2.2 cents from last week. In Ontario, base price was up 2.2 cents from last week to $2.37 per kilogram. In the Quebec market, base price was flat at $2.04 per kilogram. On the cattle side, fed cattle price at Atlantic Beef Products was 2.93 on the rail, an increase of 5 cents from the previous week. And Ontario live steers sold for $1.75, moving up one cent from last week. And in Quebec, rail price was three or four, up two cents from last week. Call Cattle Atlantic Stockyard sold for $1.15, an upward change of 11 cents from last week, while rail price at Atlantic Beef Products was $1.93, up eight cents from last week. Calls in Ontario averaged 99 cents, up six cents from last week, and 90 cents Quebec, moving up three cents. Good dairy bob calves between 90 and 120 pounds Atlantic Stockyards averaged $96, down $7. And good dairy beef calves averaged 183 down $229 from last week. Meanwhile, calves in Ontario were down 15 cents to a price of $1.86 per pound, and calves in Quebec were $1.72, a drop of 33 cents per pound. Base price for lambs at Northumberland sits at $15 per kilogram, and mutton is at $6.50 per kilogram. 50 to 64 pound lambs at Atlantic Stockyards average 393 per pound at 58 pounds, ranging from 385 to 405. In Ontario, 50 to 
64 pound lambs averaged 386 at 58 pounds, ranging from $3 to $4.20. For 65 to 79 pound lambs in Atlantic stockyards, they averaged 395 per pound at 72 pounds, ranging from 355 to 415. And in Ontario, 65 to 79 pound lambs averaged 370 per pound at 73 pounds, ranging from 270 to 412 and a half. Use at Atlantic stockyards range from 155 to $165, averaging 160. And in Ontario, use averaged $1.49 at 144 pounds, ranging from 70 cents to 320. Make sure you check your association's website for additional pricing information. So while we're talking about it, let's talk a little bit more about capitalization, especially on livestock farms here in the Maritimes. And especially on the cattle side, one of the things that we talk at a lot of meetings is, you know, kind of our harsh winters that go from minus 40 to minus four with snow to plus 10 with rain. And the, the effect that has on not only the cattle or the sheep, but then the secondary effect that it has when they're punching through ground and, and freezing. So Dan and Mandy, can you talk to us a little bit more about how you plan on managing both the animal health side and the pasture side from the wintering perspective? I know you said you had a, a secondary site or one of your sites is gonna be for wintering. So how does that vary from, from your other site? Right, so where we're, we're wintering the cattle is on our, our 40 acre farm that now has another 140 acres behind it. And that 140 acres behind it is all trees, primarily trees. So we do have massive amounts of, of wind breaks minus 40, which we haven't seen in a while here. If you reduce the, the wind chill factor, we haven't seen it in a while. So touch wood, hopefully we don't see that <laughs> or any long spells for a while, but we're certainly able to minimize the amount of, of heat loss on the animals using shelters. Like We have not seen a big problem for our animals on that side. On the health manager side, one of the things that I think we're getting a lot of the a lot of issues that we hadn't probably thought this through on was things like lice and the impact on the animals, you know, with the lice and impacting their coats. So that's something that we have to make sure that we're always on top of so that they, they are in you know the best shape that they can be given that they're, they're living outside. But as long as, you know, we really understand our, our land and we are doing a lot of, or we will be doing a lot of not so much work on the land from a plowing or, or a leveling perspective, but water management on our properties are, are going to be key. One, so that we have lots of water during droughts and we do have a couple ponds already. Two years ago during the drought, we were okay on our small property, but also the excessive amounts of water that we, that we have on some of these properties. So we'll probably be spending a lot of time over the next three years to get that down pat so that we manage the water properly so that we can make sure that you know we keep it as dry as possible when we want it dry and yet we still have water when when we need to have water jumping here i don't know sheep perspective on this one too is i winter all well most of my use outside all all winter primarily on on the cost savings of it you know i have a large barn but uh it costs me significantly less when i winter them outside they just get hay unrolled to them uh in the field well depending on the hay sometimes i top it with with grain or they'll get a tmr depending on what stage of gestation they're at and i think an interesting thing they 
that was touched on was knowing where they're at. You know, I put a lot of thought into what field I'm going to winter the sheep in based on wind direction, tree shelter. And I also, you know, use it as a, as a kind of a pre tool, I guess, before the tillage, because in the spring when it's mucky and, you know, you got all that water, they can really break that sod up and it makes the spring an initial spring tillage significantly easier if you're just going in with a set of discs. Um, it saved me to having to do a full plow on fields that, you know, for the initial time when I'm just trying to get that first year of clovers or annual ryegrass into the ground. If you manage your, depending on your hay, I guess you're putting on, but uh, yeah, the sheep are, are very hardy when it comes to the winters. And if it wasn't for the fact that I was accelerated lambing, you know, at one point my plan was to like Mandy and Dan chose to go with was a system without a barn, which I think in our maritime provinces is, is very doable with the sheep and the cattle with the right land. And, and I think the right livestock too, and making sure that we're picking livestock that can, that can do that. But I know the use like right up to about four weeks before I lamb, we keep them outside in the winter and we do pull them inside before and they go onto their pre-lambing TMR mix and, and they drop lambs inside and they'll remain inside with their lambs and then get kicked back out as dry use, whether that be in the spring or into the winter. So another question, just sticking a little bit with the capitalization and um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about farm finance without getting into any of your specific financing, but you know, how hard or easy was it for you uh, to work with an egg lender uh, to enter into the the farm world with without maybe that background or knowledge or history. How, how did that work out? Uh, do you think that they required some additional information or planning from you versus some of your other farm peers? Any feedback or thoughts on that? I, up to this point, have not approached any egg lenders. I leased all of my properties. So my only initial investment has been the flock. And then from there forward, I've just maintained a job and have always just kept everything paid off, which has caused roadblocks and complications and difficulty. And I think the next step for me is acquiring some more capital for some larger investments that I, I need to make going forward. And, you know, the, the little bit that I have worked with is, you know, this year worked with Brad and, and uh, with the advanced payments program, um, which was a big help. And I, I regret not doing it earlier. It would have been very helpful, but, um, and I'll continue to use it going forward. And actually we're in the exact same space. I mean, we, we bought our, the first 40 acres for $36,000. So it didn't cost us anything we've been saving as we go and we both have you know reasonably paying full-time jobs so we've been able to support it we work to farm is pretty much it my entire work paycheck goes into the farm so we are are looking at this year financing a tractor though we've decided that the trouble that we've had with our older tractor we're just going to suck it up and take a lease because with dan's plan which is men in the long run we may be able to downsize the amount of equipment we need. So buying a giant tractor, financing, and then being, you know, having that, that we're going to lease, that gives us some flexibility. Other than that, I think we've t- definitely taken part in the growing forward, which like the funding, that's how we paid for most, like our two ponds were paid 75% by the government. So I think those are great to access if you can. Yeah, hopefully they keep 
giving up the free money because that's always good. But yeah, we we purposely went with a I guess a, a plan that was low low capital intensive. Like my girlfriend just bought a farm just before we did, but she bought a farm just outside of Ottawa, and she paid you know close to four hundred thousand for her place. And it's maybe same, 20, 20 same, acres same bigger than ours. Her house is livable where ours wasn't, but we didn't want to get stuck in something like that and then realize that farming wasn't for us. Uh, six years later, I assume we figured out it was. So here we are. But being able to move here and try it small at first and not. We did look at large, fully functioning farms. I mean, we missed out on a couple of those, like I said in the beginning, and that would be a totally different path for us. But this has worked out good because it's given us the time to grow slowly. Well, in the beginning, not so much, but now, and uh, to find where we want to be, which is that niche specialty cow with specialty butcher. We're at an, an odd age group, right? Because we're, oh, we're yeah. actually too old to qualify for any of the, the young, young producer uh, funding opportunities. Yeah, Dan is but what, we are new 52, 52, and I'm 43, so a little bit of age there. <laughs> One of the reasons why I haven't pursued funding from the major lending institutes is often they're easily advertised uh, programs that they offer are not things that have ever I've ever needed. You know, the access to capital, for example, for growing a flock is is difficult. And the, the couple conversations I've had, they've never if they don't like that. They they always are you know want you to be buying land or you know something that is a little more I don't know they can see. I don't know why they can't see sheep, but so it's that's been a little challenging and i think why i kind of quickly stopped looking and just figured a way to make it work without relying on them which i think in the long run might help me i'm hoping it'll help me when we come to purchase the farm here in that couple years which the plan is but you know as someone myself you know young and the things that i have you know i i own most of my equipment most of it's just Kijiji equipment that I've brought back to life or, you know, saved from a tree line somewhere. And it makes, it produces what I needed to produce. It's what I can make work. So what's next for you folks? I know uh, the Dacostas, you've talked a little bit about your plans for doing some on-farm processing. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that looks like? And if you've got a bit of a timeline associated with it, if you can share. Well, if I can get funding, I'd do it tomorrow, but... <laughs> Um, I don't know. Uh, I'd love to have an on-farm processing. And then in the long run, I'd like to put an event-based dining hall where I can put my chefing to good use and serve like a full beef dinner or something and that kind of thing. But, you know, on my time, because I'll still have the job. Uh, otherwise, I see a small processing area that has the, a holding capacity of maybe five carcasses. I want to make sure that people are getting fresh meat, that kind of thing. We want to do meat boxes down the line to start. And then I'm going to look into value-added products. Well, again, with regulations, that's a whole different, not only is a slaughterhouse, now I need a commercial kitchen license. So we have a whole old farmhouse that our plan is to build it, retrofit it to what needs to be if I wanted to get my license. But because Nova Scotia allows farm gate processing, I won't be processing for anyone else. We also want to stay biosecure where it's just our animals. And I can say that only one animal comes through here and this is where it's from and that kind of thing. So I don't know, timeline on that. So much different now that I have a full-time job. I'd like to say five um, years, but. Well, with the new acquisition of those two other properties, that's probably the focus for the next three years. And then we'll probably start the on-farm processing 
So five years, five years. And then the dining hall, I mean, that's my retirement plan. That's what I want to do when I'm retired. And I'm like, oh, substitutions? No, no, it's my menu, honey. Uh, you're a vegan? Oh, no, I sell beef. I'm sorry. <laughs> Adam, how about you? I, I know I had a chance to visit your farm here about a month or so ago and in about mid-July, I guess it was, and talking with some of the cool stuff you're you're doing there with your sheep and your marketing especially. What What's next for you over the next year or two or three? Yeah, I think we're just trying to grow the flock. One of the things that was really important to me when I started down this road was I wanted to be able to be self-employed on the farm. That was one of the big driving factors for me to come the farm direction. I don't understand people that aren't don't have that mindset, but that's where I'm at. So for me, being able to get to a point where I don't need an off-farm income is very important. So that for us, that looks we need to increase our U flock. We've also been expanding our hay business trying to produce a finer higher quality horse hay because i have more land right now than i know what to do with so i we saw an opening in, in that market uh so we've been enjoying trying to figure that out still trying to really focus on on, on the sheep because that's you know really that's where the the passion is and that's really where i see being able to truly grow and uh i think push markets and opportunities are in those use and just kind of using the hay as a as a cash flow and and trying to maximize our the acres that we have available to us and and it's an added bonus where it's money that we can then turn around and put back right back into land which down the road is going to produce us better lambs so we're just trying to grow our our sheep flock and you know maybe someday i'll get an insulated lambing barn so i don't have to spend all night sleeping in hammocks and coveralls yeah, in the middle of winter, but we'll see. That might be too far-fetched for two years, three years. Excellent. Well, I think I've taken enough of your evening uh, for this recording, so I appreciate all of you uh, for joining us. And tell us a little bit about yourself and, and why you got into farming, especially here in Nova Scotia. Um, I do think there are a lot of opportunities here in the province, particularly in Cumberland County. There, there's lots of very good farmland up there. It's very reasonably priced. Uh, it's one of the most productive agricultural counties we have here in Nova Scotia. So, and it's always good to see young folks like you that are interested in, in being a part of the ag industry. So thank you all very much for joining us. And we'll probably see you at the beef conference and sheep conference here in the next uh, month or so. For sure. Thanks for having us. Thanks, yeah, thanks Brad. It's always enjoyable. Don't want to miss any future episodes? Subscribe to a Maritime Agcast today through Anchor. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform. This concludes another episode of Maritime AgCast. We would like to thank our producer, the Agri-Commodity Management Association, Director Ashley, as well as Matt Whitehour and Micah Dahl-Anderson of ArchesAudio.com for providing the music you heard during this episode. Until next time, happy farming and keep feeding the Maritimes.